Good morning. It's an, it's an honor to be with all of you. Uh, Jonathan was a very good student. He wouldn't tell you that. Well, maybe he would tell you that. <laughs> you probably could have guessed it. Uh, so this morning I'm going to be talking about the 10th commandment, and uh, we'll be making a wander into 1 Corinthians 10 as part of talking about it. When I was in middle school, which is 50 years ago now, which doesn't seem that long to me, but it's been 50 years, all of my friends were Jewish. Uh, my dad was in the Navy. He would give himself four days to find a house. He would go to the new city where he was going to be stationed. He would find the cheapest house that met our needs. And he found this house close to a community center. He said, great, and it was was a great deal, and when we moved in, we discovered it was a Jewish community center, and if, if our family hadn't been there, I'm pretty sure the entire neighborhood would have been mono-ethnic. Um, at the time, it was uh, like just ordinary. We'd moved so many times, making friends with the people who showed up to play in your yard was what you did, and it really didn't occur to me that all of my friends were Jewish until uh, we were... Uh, when you're in middle school and you're a boy, and it's the 1970s, I don't know what they do now, but we spent a lot of time running in and out of houses, uh, loudly. Only with my Jewish friends, you couldn't run in or out of the house in a pell-mell way because you had to stop at the door. If you were going in or if you were going out, you had to stop at the door, and nailed to the door was a little metal scroll. And it, you know, it, it wasn't... There wasn't paper in it or anything. It was just a little metal representation of the Torah. It was called a mezuzah, uh, which sounds like the word for commandment, and it was the law of God. My Jewish friends, all of them were conservative Jews. They went to synagogue service. Much of the service was in Hebrew. And they were obeying Deuteronomy 6, which says Israel because you're my people, think about the law all the time and put it on your doorposts and on your gates. And so it was nailed every way in and out of the house, had a little metal scroll. And when you went in or out of the house, you had to stop, kiss your fingers, and touch the mezuzah to remind yourself that we are the people who have the law of God. Well, I watched this happening, and they explained it to me, and... um, I don't remember how long I'd been watching them do it, and I thought, hey, wait a minute. And I was 12 or 13, and I said, the law of God's for me too. Deuteronomy's in my Bible. And so we're heading into the house, and I kiss my fingers, and I reach out to touch the mezuzah. And Clifford, uh, who was very large and was shaving when he was 12, to, to give you an idea, he grabs my hand and says, no, you're not Jewish. That's not for you. God gave his law to us, his people, to remind us that we are special. That is God's gift for his people, not you. Uh, I didn't touch it. And I never touched it, but I thought about it. (laughs) Uh, It shaped the way I think about the Ten Commandments, the way I think about the law of God generally. And the Tenth Commandment, it doesn't get the kind of attention that the Sixth Commandment does, do not murder, um, or the Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery. 
but it's the last of them. And it goes like this. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So I was reading there from Deuteronomy 5. Moses gives the law, all of the Ten Commandments again, as Israel is, this is not now at Mount Sinai. They're outside the promised land. They're about to enter into the promised land. And so there's the Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law, is what Deuteronomy is. It's the second time that the law is given to Israel. And here, all Ten Commandments. The prohibition here is against coveting your neighbor's spouse and house. That's how I'm going to summarize it. Now, you might think uh, you don't have, you might have a spouse and you might have a house, but you probably don't have an ox or a donkey or a male servant or a female servant. And if you're confused about that, that is not your spouse. Okay? That's, that's not how it works. <clears throat> but you probably have things that function like oxes and donkeys. You might have a car, and you might have a Roomba, because Roombas are servants. Your refrigerator is a servant who thinks, keeps things. So uh, you can imagine desiring your neighbor's refrigerator. I was looking at what they cost, and those are worth, no, they're not worth coveting. You shouldn't do that, uh, but they can be quite expensive. God gives the commandments to Israel. Remember, the Israelites believe that the law of God is given to them to remind them that they're special. Even though they're presented as negatives, most of them are presented as things not to do. The way the rest of the scriptures teach the Ten Commandments, they are, they are included in the don't do is information about what it means to flourish as the people of God. And one of, the, uh, one of the things I'm hoping to show is that this is supposed to be a commandment about how we will flourish together. Let me pray for us before we go any farther. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law, which shows us not only how to please you, but how to live the fullest abundant life that we can. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would apply this word to our hearts, um, and that you would draw us close together, that we might love you better and show the world what it means to be loved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you were Jewish, there wouldn't be a problem imagining that even the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is a gift to you, and in order to make progress in... Uh, unwrapping this gift, consider what happens just one chapter later at the end of Deuteronomy 6, because we have a little window into the way children had their hearts shaped. Another thing that I learned from having, uh, having all of these Jewish friends is sometimes they let me eat at their houses, and at the end of dinner, they would have question and answer time. And it was like that in my Presbyterian house, too. Only in my Presbyterian house, the parents would ask the questions. They would be short. And 
the children would give the answers, and sometimes they would be really long. Uh, that's not how it was in the houses of my Jewish friends. Their houses, the children asked the question, and the parents gave the answers. So uh, starting in verse t- uh, 20 of Deuteronomy 6, we have this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Most of the answers at at the dinner table, when the children would ask, what is the meaning of this feature of our life as the people of God? Most of the answers began, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And he delivered us from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And at some point it occurred to me, um, even though I'm not an Israelite after the flesh, I was a slave to sin. And Jesus delivered me from all of that by his sinless life, his death on the cross, his rising from the dead. Jesus delivered me from something worse than Pharaoh, delivered me from sin. And so the meaning of the law is that You are God's people for your good. So in the 10th commandment, we have both a warning and a gift. The warning is about what happens to us when we desire things that are not ours. In a minute, I will explain in a little more detail what it means to covet something, but you know what it's like to have a desire for something that is not yours and that you should not have. And if you allow that to grow, and especially if you nurture it by reminding yourself about this thing that you do not have, is that it eats you up from the inside. One part of the 10th commandment is to warn you against that kind of frustration. Another part of the 10th commandment is what it means for us together, is that in a community where you have people who have nice things and other people who don't have those nice things, it's hurtful to the community when some are frustrated that they don't have those nice things. And so the promise that God extends, part of the gift that's coming with the 10th commandment is that we will flourish, we will enjoy life together if we do whatever it is that is the opposite of coveting. And that's where I have to take you. So here's the plan for where we're going to go. I'm gonna say a bit about what it means to covet. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 10 to see how giving up our rights in a certain way, is part of the opposite of coveting. Then I'll say specifically and clearly what the opposite of coveting is, and I'll say a little bit about what we can be doing together in order to grow in this way, to realize the gift that God gives in the 10th commandment. So, uh, coveting, you probably have a decent idea what it is. Specifically, coveting is the desire to take delight 
in something. Uh, God covets Jerusalem as his own city, uh, and that's okay. But when you covet your neighbor's spouse, that's not yours to enjoy. And when you covet your neighbor's house, that's when you desire to have your neighbor's house, what you're desiring is to take it away from your neighbor. Not stealing it, it's just desire that your neighbor wouldn't have it and that you would, that your neighbor would be deprived. You can see why that would be bad for a community. <laughs> that if, you're, if you are, this is something that's gonna grow in you. If you don't fight the desire to have your neighbor's good things, it's going to grow and it's going to undermine the mutual trust that is part of being a community. It's going to be destructive of community. So it's harmful, it's harmful to you, it's harmful to the community. And one of the ways that it's, one of the ways that coveting is slightly different for us, when Israel gets this commandment, they're in the wilderness, they're about to cross into the promised land, and the things that are described are not things that you can go to Costco and get. I realize that spouses are not at Costco, and if they were, that'd be a, there'd be a lot to worry about. If, apparently everything else is at Costco. If you're in the wilderness, you're an Israelite, you're about to, you're carrying, you've been carrying all that you have, and so your house is a tent, and if you desire your neighbor's tent, it's not like there's a place, there's not a place to go buy another one. The only place to get those things is to take them away from your neighbor. Desiring something like your neighbor's house is not coveting. Desiring something like your neighbor's house because you're embittered that they have it and you don't, that is, even though you could get one like it, because the prohibition is against tearing yourself up inside over what you don't have because your neighbor does. So even if you're desiring just something like it, insofar as it includes this bitterness, it's also destructive to you and destructive to the community. Now, we are surrounded, the culture around us um, doesn't think there's much wrong with almost unbounded desire for stuff. We are, uh, we are a culture that is materially rich and spiritually poor because we think that fulfillment is found in more stuff. And because of that, if we're going to make progress together in putting aside the attitudes of heart that go with coveting that hurt all of us and putting on instead whatever the alternate attitude is that I still have to explain, uh, it's going to be in the teeth of what the world thinks. Part of the reason that we're going to have to look at 1 Corinthians 10 is that putting on the gift that is extended in the 10th commandment is going to mean looking odd to the world. And odd in a particular way, a way having to do with what we do with our rights. So let's look now at uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul's letter to the church, first letter to the church at Corinth is, um, well, I'm glad it exists. 
because uh, if it weren't for the if it weren't for the details of what life was like in in the Corinthian church, uh, we might think that our church is the worst ever. But no, they win. Uh, they were taking each other to court. They were they were uh, proud of a man who was uh, who was sleeping with his stepmother. They were proud of it as an instance of freedom in Christ, and they were using the celebration of the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for making poor people feel ashamed, like bad. And that's just the beginning of the list of horrid things that they were doing. In the midst of all of this failure by the church, the thing that gets Paul's attention most of all is that they're divided. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 1, after saying, hello, I'm Paul, I know what I'm talking about, Paul goes right to, I appeal to you, brothers, this is verse 10 of chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarreling among you, my brothers. This is not just squabbling. This is, Paul goes on to say, some of you say, I'm a follower of Paul. Others of you say, I'm a follower of Apollos. And so they, were, they had divided into parties, factions. They saw the church not as all of us, but as some of us and them inside the church. And Paul's going to come back to that over and over again as evidence that they are spiritually immature, that they're not capable of dealing with the hard things that he's going to have to feed them on pap, on milk. Paul's argument, uh, one, of the, one of the issues that gets the most attention from Paul as a manifestation of this Uh, this attitude of division and comfort with uh, a party factional spirit is the the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. And that's the issue that starts in 1 Corinthians 8 and runs all the way to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11. That's like a quarter of the book is centered around, it revolves around this question of meat sacrificed to idols. It's um, something that we don't think about um, ordinary pagan practice uh, we don't have pagan practices now in the United States there are other parts of the world where you can still see this uh, where, where this specific problem shows up but the pagan worship practices involve taking a piece of meat as your offering going to the pagan priest giving it to the priest uh, some of that meat would be burned typically uh, but there was usually way too much that was brought by the worshipers to be eaten, and instead, that meat that wasn't going to be uh, the meat that wasn't going to be burned in the offering, the priests would take it and eat it, and there was still too much of it left over. And so, whatever the priests weren't going to eat that day because it goes bad, they would take to the market and they would sell. And then that would be more income for the priest. They can't consume it before it goes bad, so they're going to sell it, and then this is part of what they're going to live on. There were those in the church at Corinth who had been engaging in those practices before they came to Jesus. And so they thought it was pretty important that they not eat meat that had taken that detour through the pagan ritual. 
So when they would go to the market, they would say to the, uh, the person who's selling meat, like, uh, where'd you get that? Um, and they would want to know, has it been offered to an idol? There were others in the church who thought, you know, it doesn't really matter where it's been before now because pagan idols aren't anything anyway. And so that hasn't made it uh, impossible to eat. It's not diseased or polluted in a way that would matter to me. And so they, it was another way that they exercised their freedom in Christ. So I'm going to eat, I'm going to go buy the meat that I can get in the market, and I'm not going to ask any questions. But you can see how that's a fun theological distinction. But they turned a theological question into a reason to say, I don't want to be associated with you. You are, you are not worthy of my association. You are not eating meat. You are eating meat. They turned that into a reason to stay divided. And the summary of what Paul wants to say to them is all of you should care more about your life together than you do about being right on this issue. And so uh, in chapter 10, the, the conclusion, the, the big finish to Paul's discussion of meat sacrifice to idols starts in verse 23 of chapter 10. And Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So, first part, you can go ahead and eat the meat because it all ultimately comes from God. That's not all he says. Now, um, on the screen, you can see I've got um, all things are lawful is in bold. Uh, starting in chapter 7, Paul starts, he says, about the things that you asked me about. And so in places after chapter 7, there are places where you have to decide, is Paul quoting something he heard from them, or is he responding to something he heard from the church in Corinth? And so uh, all things are lawful, which he says twice here, is probably something that was said by one of those parties. Hey, look, it's okay for us to eat the meat. And Paul says, yes. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So, Paul goes on. It is all right for you to eat without asking. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You can do it, but... If someone says to you, this has been offered to, in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Paul has just said that it's okay to eat the meat without asking any questions. So you have the right to eat it. But Paul says, if it would offend your brother, the person who says, you know, that was offered in sacrifice, that was bought from the market after it had taken the detour through the temple, uh, if someone says that, you should not eat. Even though you have the right to eat it, and even though you're theologically correct, and their conscience is theologically incorrect, for the sake of your brother's conscience, don't eat. Now, you have to understand, when Paul writes this, it's the, the Roman world in the first century 
was as fanatically concerned with identifying and defending their rights as we are in America today. Possibly more so, depending on uh, where you were in society. They were very serious about having their rights honored. And Paul says, set your rights aside for the sake of your life together. It was countercultural when Paul said it, when he wrote it to the, to the church in Corinth in his first letter, and it's countercultural today in America right now for us to say, you know, there are things that are more important than my right. So in what follows in, at, at the second half of verse 29 is Paul saying, I hear the objection that you're about to make. This is what, what Paul says. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 29, second half of the verse. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? That's an objection that he can imagine a right-mongering Corinthian to have to what he just said about setting your rights aside. But Paul says no. Your brother's conscience is not just his problem. Your brother's conscience is your problem. Starting at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul says here that God's glory, the unity of the church, and the witness of the church to the world is more important than his right. And the argument that Paul is making is that what he's doing in setting aside his rights is what Jesus did. When Paul says, be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ, his specific example, what he specifically has in mind is setting aside your rights for the good of others. That's what Jesus did. Gave us, Jesus gave up his rights. He was the maker of everything. He was the Lord of glory. He could have stayed in heaven and let us die in our sins, but as Paul explains in detail in Philippians 2, Jesus gave up all of those rights so that you and I could be with him. That's the example that Jesus uh, that Jesus gives and that Paul wants the people in Corinth to follow, to give up their rights for the sake of the body. So you might be wondering, what does that have to do with coveting? Well, let's uh, think for a minute about rights that you have with regards to spouses and houses. You have the right to enjoy those good things. You even have the right to tell other people about what swell things you have. On the other hand, if you don't have swell things, you have other rights. Suppose that as you were coming in today, you saw one of your sisters in Christ get out of a nice new car. Like whatever you think of as nice and new is definitely nice. And it occurs to you, like you think, like how can she afford that car? You might even think that's way more car than she needs just to get around. Like she could have... She could have purchased a cheaper car and given the rest of that money to feed the hungry. Like, you have the right to ask those questions too. 
Oh, on the other hand, with, your, with regards to your nice stuff, suppose you just came back from a COVID-delayed vacation and your phone was full of pictures, full of pictures of the, all of the excellent things that you got to do on that vacation. Do you have the right to enjoy those things? You do. Do you have the right to post them to social media to make sure everybody knows what a nice time you had, complete with uh, captions saying, God is so good to us, uh, look at the time we had in Bali? Yes. You have the right to do that. Um, And maybe you should. But it's also possible that by posting those pictures on social media, that you're making it harder for your sisters and brothers to be happy with all that they have. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying that this is the sort of thing that you should be praying about. You should be like, talk to Jonathan or talk about it in your small group. Like seriously, this is the sort of thing that we should do together. How can I use the pictures that I have of my great stuff in a way that will build up the body of Christ? Because the unity of the body is more important than your rights. If we're going to imitate Jesus, our first question is going to be, what can I lay aside for the good of others? Not, what can I insist on because it's my right? The world is going to find that puzzling. Maybe even odd. Now now I am able to tell you what the opposite of coveting is. Um, In the history of Christian reflection on the Tenth Commandment, the runaway winner opposite of coveting is contentment. And there is no question that contentment is a minimal condition because when you are content, you are not looking at your neighbor's blessings and thinking, wait a minute, it's not right. I should have that too, if you're content. Contentment is a pretty individual kind of virtue. More than contentment is to think about what does it mean for a group to be the opposite of coveting? What does it mean to be a community? And it's, well, think about when Israel first heard the law. When they first heard the 10th commandment, it was the last commandment that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai. And this is Exodus 20. What has happened to Israel before they heard those 10 commandments? They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God delivered them from slavery. He protected them from Pharaoh's army. He took them through the Red Sea to safety. He provided them with water from the rock and manna in the desert and meat fell from the sky. God had provided them with everything and the culmination of his 10 commandments is don't covet your neighbor's good stuff because I am providing everything. So when you see your sister with the brand new car, your first thought should be, it is fantastic that God is blessing us. And it's a sign of God's goodness to us that my sister has that car. Now, at some point, she might come over to you and say, what do you think of my new car? Do you think this was good stewardship? You know, with that kind of invitation, you can say, um, I'm confused. Right? That's okay. You were invited. But until you're invited, it shouldn't be even arising in your heart. It shouldn't be, hey, wait a minute. I think probably she, she can't afford that. Your first thought is just, God is so good to us. And that's, it's going to take some time. <laughs> 
I have to be honest. I have been teaching about the Tenth Commandment for decades now, and um, I'm making tiny, fractional amounts of progress on having my first thought be, it is so great that God is blessing us when the blessing is being enjoyed by a sister or brother in Christ. But you can make progress. Briefly, what can we be doing together? We can pray. We can pray for discernment about what pictures we post. We can pray that our first thought would be delight, that our neighbor is blessed. We can pray for those things. We can also give thanks for the good things that we do have. And we can give thanks for the good things that our neighbors have. And we can do that out loud. People can hear that we're thankful, that other people are blessed. Something else we can do, I've tried to be careful in this talk, and I'm trying to become more careful in my own thinking and speaking about the way we think, the way we use the terms us and them. In the Wednesday night series coming up, we're going to have to go here in more detail because the world really wants us to think there's a few of us that are the good people, and then there's everyone else. There's them. And if that's inside the church, if we're thinking there's the good people inside the church and then there's the other people who, like, I don't know what they're doing here. Um, If the us-them spirit has come inside of the church that is hostile to a, a community that's flourishing, and, well, it's all over the place, in an age like ours, characterized by division and squabbling over power, we're going to have to say more about us and them, not just inside the church, and that'll be, on the, that'll be part of what we're doing on Wednesday nights. In the case of coveting, when you covet your neighbor's nice things, you are turning your neighbor into them. We are the deprived. They have stuff. Coveting is a violation of our usness, and so you want to be careful that you hurt the unity of the church when you think of your brother or sister as them. Most of all, though, we need to meditate on the riches that we already enjoy in Christ. In uh, Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the church and prays for us that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might know what is the hope to which he has called us What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? We can rejoice in our neighbor's prosperity because we already have all that we need in Christ. That's the kind of flourishing that the 10th commandment promises to God's people. God gives us the 10 commandments in order that we might remember that we are special that we belong to him, and that he's providing us with everything that we need. And when we do that, we will be the community that the world can look at and say, that's what it looks like to dwell in peace and love. It will be a glorious oddness, and the world will ask us what's going on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you that we are blessed beyond what we can imagine. We ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would draw us to to yourself, and that in drawing us to yourself, you would draw us to each other. Please make us a witness 
to your bounty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.